Hello, I'm Elder Greg Newman, and I want to welcome you to New Hope Fellowship Online. I want to thank you for tuning into this message. I hope and pray that it helps you grow in your relationship with Jesus and challenges you to study God's Word. If you'd like more information on who we are as a church, you are invited to nhfchurch.org. If you're interested in partnering with us financially to help us continue to share the gospel with those around us, visit nhfchurch.org and click on Give. Again, I'm thankful that you are here listening, and I hope you enjoy this message. I'm going to be sick of it, but the point is to remember it. And re- repetition, repetition, repetition is good for you. Uh, teaching is my background. So my undergrad was in. And so you would teach something, and you would teach it multiple ways. My math teacher uh, in high school would t- give us a quiz and kind of see where we would fall. And if most of us passed, she would move on with the curriculum. If we failed or most of us didn't pass, she wouldn't actually keep those records, this little quiz. She'd then reteach the thing. And we thought it was new lessons, but she would reteach it so that we'd learn it. And likewise, as you read Scripture, you read it once and you're going to learn something. You read it a second time, you're going to learn something new. You read it a third and you're going to keep learning new and new things. And so the point of Hebrews is this encouragement that your faith is good. That Jesus is greater than all of these things that is found in Hebrews in the Old Testament law code. Jesus Jesus is greater. And chapters 9 and 10 of Hebrews, they go hand in hand. And so last week we looked at chapter 9, bridged into chapter 10 a little bit. And we're going to finish chapter 10 this morning. The concept is life together. And most of us in the Western culture in America, we, we tend to have this phrase, you can pick yourself up by your bootstraps. That's like an old school term, which is impossible if you think about it and you lay down and you try to pick yourself up by your boots, you can't do it. But it's this mentality that you can go it alone. You don't need anybody else. It's all about you. It's an independent focus. And, and as America, we've, we have that stigma. We've got that reputation. But in Hebrews 10, he's talking about that life is actually better spent together. And as we conclude chapter 10, starting in verse 19, it's going to break us into three kind of parts He's going to give some encouragement of what do we have, and then what do we do with what we have. And then he's going to break it down the middle to, okay, here's a little warning yet again of be mindful that as you live out this faith, don't get caught flat-footed. And then the third part is another encouragement and reminder of what you've been through and what you've gone through. And so from a context standpoint, that's kind of what he's bridging into When I was overseas finishing up my last year of college, I spent time in Israel for about four months, and I met a bunch of expatriates that were just from other countries, and Ina had this phrase, life is better spent together. It's that concept that we tend to think in America that I can do it by myself, and growing up in a pastor's household, going into high school, college, I could do a lot of independent be by myself, do it by myself. I can live, I don't need anybody else. And it wasn't until I got overseas that I realized, well, it's actually, I need people. And no matter how introverted you may find yourself, you need people. You may not need as many people as an extrovert like myself needs, and you can put me in a library and I'll fall asleep. You put me in a coffee house, I can get a lot of work done because there's stimulation, there's people. And the point is that we are better together. And during my time overseas, just being around the community, just being around the people was an encouragement. And the risk of that is that you become known, that as you get into community, as you get around people, as you get friends, they get to know you. And will they like you? If they know the deep, dark secrets of your heart, if they know your past mistakes, will they still like you? And that's the risk of living life together. 
is that as in a household, if you're, have, if you're married and you have kids, you know the ins and outs, and everyone's like, oh, your son, your daughter's so sweet. This like, you have no idea what they're really like. I grew up in a household. There was four other siblings. I was number five. I was the middle. I was the forgotten one. That's how us middle children feel. And as the forgotten one, people would say, oh, your, your brother this, your sister this. I'm like, you have no idea what they're really like, and you don't know what they're truly like. But if you did, you wouldn't say those nice things about my siblings. And it's the same way in community, that as we get into church, as we get into small groups, as we do ministry, as we get to know each other, do you really know somebody? And the value and the risk of that is if they truly knew you, they can hurt you with that information. They can backstab you. They can go against, they can do all sorts of things. But the risk and reward is that if they know you, then they can encourage you. They can walk with you through life, through the ups and the downs. And what Ina also shared and what she impressed upon me, and it wasn't just her, it was this whole group of people, is that I'm there for four months which means I say goodbye at the end of four months and I come back to the U.S. They go back to wherever they're at or stay in Israel. Four months is not a long time to really get to know someone. And if you get to know them, you have to say goodbye and there's the hurt and the pain of, I gotta say goodbye. So is it really even worth getting to know you? And what impressed me on them is that it was very much in their interest and what they wanted to do is get to know me and invest in me, knowing that at the end of four months, See you later, Nick, and I may never see you again. And so for some of us, we've had friends in all of our lives where you've had a best friend for 20, 30 years. Some of you have had that. Or you grow up in the same area. You've lived Carroll County maybe your entire life. To me, that's foreign. That's just been my upbringing. That's been my story is I don't have a friend who I would say from elementary or kindergarten, I've had this best friend. What God has typically done in my life, and maybe this is similar to yours or not, is that he has brought people at just the right time to step into my life to encourage me. At just, not too soon, not too late, but at just the right moment to encourage, to lift me up, and to say, this is awesome. And then he says, okay, Nick, now it's time to go. And I'm like, wait a minute, I'm enjoying this, this community, this group of people. I don't want to leave. God says, in some ways to me, yes, this is good. Now go duplicate this. Go take what you've learned and multiply this out. And that was what Ina had said to me, Nick, take what you've learned, what you've experienced. And when you go back, do the same thing. And so as we jump into Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, it starts this way, therefore, and if you highlight, circle that, it's referring to everything that was talked about before. Brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place, and this is how we have that confidence, by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And so he's saying we have a boldness and a confidence to approach God's throne. That prior to this in the Old Testament, if you were to read pre the Gospels, you had a high priest who once a year would go into the Holy of Holies. And we looked at this last week, that the temple had kind of a three divisions. You had the outer courtyard where the sacrifices were done. The priests would go to the Gentile court. Then you had an inner court where there was 12 loaves of bread, signifying the 12 tribes of Israel and a lampstand, the light. And then there was a thick, heavy curtain that separated the inner court from the holiest of holies. 
And the holiest of holies had the Ark of the Covenant, and inside the Ark was Aaron's staff, the first priest, Moses' brother, signifying his leadership, the Ten Commandments, and manna to distinguish and describe God's covenant promise. And what he's saying here is that the old law, the old covenant, the high priest then would have to make sure he dotted his I's and crossed his T's and said every sin that he has to make atonement for before he entered into the Holy of Holies or he's going to die. He's going to come in between God's holiness and if there's not restitution, if there's not payment paid for the sin, he's going in with fear and trepidation. And what the author is saying here is contrary to that, you and I, because of what Jesus has done, that curtain has been ripped. It's not just been taken down, folded neatly, placed to the side. It's been ripped in two to give access for you and me to God the Father. And so because of that access, we have confidence and boldness to go into the throne room, not on account of what we have done, but on account of Jesus' blood and his death and his resurrection, a new covenant. We have this boldness. God looks at it this way. The sacrifice of Jesus is always fresh in the mind of God. Though it happened almost two millennia ago, almost 2,000 years ago, to God, it's not stale. It's not just a sacrifice that happened and it's done. To him, he sees it. It's a reminder that it was very costly for God to allow us into that position, into grafted into the faith family. And he's saying, you and I, we have this confidence, this boldness, not to come in with fear before God the Father, but to go in with confidence, knowing he hears us, knowing he loves us, knowing he cares for us on account of what Christ has done. So then he encourages verse 22, let us draw near then with a true heart in full assurance of faith, our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. It's symbolic of looking back at the Ark of the Covenant. The lid on that covenant and the holiest of holies would be sprinkled with blood from the lambs and the sacrifices. And he's saying here, you and I, our lives have been sprinkled clean by the blood of Christ. And because of that, our bodies have been washed, referring to baptism. Let us, verse 23, hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who is promised is faithful. In a sense, boldly draw near to God and don't lose hope. Boldly draw near to him. You don't have to linger. You don't have to think he doesn't hear you or that it's just happenstance. The point is God wants you to draw near, that God wants and desires to know him. It's again, as I refer to oftentimes, my two-year-old who just has questions or this or that, and we sometimes go to God with questions and we think we're a pest or that this is a meaningless question. I don't want to bother God. I don't want to bother people with this. And God is saying, no, I want to hear. And in fact, it's very important. Because it's important to you, God wants to hear about it. If he's our Abba, if he's our Father, then he desires that relationship and to know. And kind of how more awesome it is as a parent when you see your kids start to get it and put it together that there's a smile that's brought to your face. Or you've taught them something and they start to repeat it and teach others and you just start to smile as you see them multiplying. And he's saying, look, let us approach with boldness the throne of God. Why? Because of what Christ has done, that we have this full assurance of faith that we can boldly approach him. And in verse 24, it says, because we have that ability, because we have the confidence, because we can go before God, and because then our hearts should be raised, Verse 24 says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. It is so much easier to tear down, to share opinions, 
to post anything online this day and age. It's like you got so many social media apps and things. It's easier to share my opinion. It's easier to get snippets of somebody else. It's easier to tear down. And what he is saying here is, and let us then, because we have this ability, because of we have this, we're sons with God, because of that access, let us then consider how do we stir up each other? And here's the thing, you can't stir up other people unless you're around other people. It's very hard to do by yourself unless you're in community. Unless you're around people, you cannot stir up others. In some ways, it's like a sports team. I always look at it. If you're down at half, there's usually the captain or the person who's got the charisma on the team that if you're down at halftime or you're down at some point, they're trying to rally the team. There's this charisma to encourage And it's much easier, as I said, to tear down than it is to lift up. It's much easier to give critical feedback to people or to share your opinion, but the question is, is it helpful? How do you encourage someone? And I go back to my time in Israel, even there, what was encouraging is that they just welcomed me. They just let me come around. They just fed me a meal. They let me go hiking, camping with them. They let me just be present. That was encouragement to just be around because it parallels to the very next part of the verse. Let us stir up one another with love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. You can't encourage someone again unless you're around them. We get into these habits that when life is going well, why do I need church? Why do I need to be in groups? Why do I need this if things are going well? It's only usually when we're in crisis that we come back to the church or back at points. And what he's saying is, let's stir up one another and let's not neglect to meet one another. It's the mundane. Week in, week out, day in, day out, doing the right thing. It can seem boring, monotonous. Is this even effective? I'm reading my Bible. I've been going to church. Is there any difference? And you in the middle of it with blinders, because you're doing day by day, week by week, don't see the trajectory of where it's headed. But you put that and multiply that out 20, 30 years, and you start to see where God starts to shift you, where you come to a fork in the road, and it's a very easy decision to know what is right and what is wrong. What does God want for this? And you know it, versus when you're haphazardly going to church, haphazardly serving, haphazardly involved, then when you get to those forks in the road where you're kind of like, I don't really know what to do, you really don't, because it's not an easy But the more that you're in community, the more that you're around church, the more that you're around people and of the faith, the more easier those forks in the road become to know that's a no-brainer, that decision. Again, I've said it before, it's that one degree off that as you walk with God, one degree off, just a little off, will take you so far down where you don't want to be. Sin will always take you further than you intend and keep you longer than you want. And that's what he's saying here is don't neglect meeting together. And again, in our culture, coming out of COVID, our schedules are going to get swarmed again. It was pre-COVID, it was that way. It was the busy, it was sports, it was all these travels, all of these things. Growing up, again, one of five, my dad's a pastor. So it was, what are you going to do for sports? And so because there's five of us, my sisters did a lot of dance. I did baseball. My brother did soccer. We did a variety, but we couldn't do sports all the time. And the rule in the house was, there's no travel. So you can go on travel team through the week, but Sundays you're in church. Why is that? Because it was important for the family. And my parents said, look, when you're out of the house, if you don't want to, you don't have to. But while you're in our house, you're going to church. It was a Sunday thing. It was important. 
vice versa here, it's we can make excuses. We can get out of those habits. And then we start to get easier and easier and easier and further and further and further. And so how do we encourage one another? Well, we have to then know each other. We have to speak life into each other. We have to know someone in order to know how do we then encourage what's going on. There's a rapport. David Guzik writes this about this entire section. He says, some only go to church if they feel the need for it. But our motivation for fellowship must be to obey God and to give to others. We can and should gather with believers to encourage someone who needs to stand strong against the tide of discouragement. We gather to receive something from God. We gather to give something to God. We gather to encourage each other by our shared faith and values. We gather to bless one another, and we gather together to work. The words assembling, not neglecting to meet together, presumably refer to worship meetings. Although this is not stated, it may purposely be left ambiguous so as to include other gatherings of more informal kind, but suggest an official assembly. This point of this matters. And each year, three times a year, I preach on the, you know, as we get into connection groups, we go into this cycle. I say, usually at the start of the sermon, there's four things you can do that will grow your faith. And it's not a magic formula. It's not if you do these four, your life is perfect and you'll magically grow. But if you do these four, you put yourself in a position to grow. One of those things is just what you're doing right now. You just showed up. You put yourself in a position to hear God's word preached. You put yourself in a position to hear God's word sung and you to sing and participate. You put yourself in a position to be encouraged by someone else. You put yourself in a position to be able to share something of life that's going on that someone else says, hey, here's a touch point for you. What's going on? And you don't realize even in group settings, why are groups so valuable here at New Hope? Because this is great. But you can't always do the one another's of Scripture unless you're in a smaller group where you get a little more time to talk a little further about what's really going on. And so as you get into groups, you start to see, okay, this is what's going on, and why can't we meet that need? And you get to meet the need. You get to do ministry. It's not just the pastor or the staff. It's you. There's been multiple groups that have done different things for people in their groups to encourage, to lift up. Again, my time, I go back to, I always reflect on my time in Israel. No idea what's going on in my life and yet they welcomed me in, and they spoke into me because they simply got to know me. Nick, what are you learning from Scripture? Nick, where are you growing? Nick, what is your plans? Nick, what is this? And took a vested interest to encourage and uplift. And Guzik writes there, don't neglect. It is so important that life is better spent together. And as he reminds them that we have this confidence to approach the throne room of God, that we should stir one another up to encourage because we can approach the throne room of God and we're to go out and disciple and to give, he gives a warning right in the middle of this section. In verse 26, he says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. What he's getting at is... You, this is who you are. You, are. you have access to the throne room. You have access to God the Father. Keep meeting together because it builds your faith and encourages you. You get around other people, it encourages them. Be mindful, though, as you live that you're going to become swayed, that life comes at you. And if you're not diligent, there's that song, Casting Crowns, that slow fade, where sometimes you get a little tripped up. And this is not saying here that this is a little sin that you don't know about 
or that you've been raised in church and you're just unfamiliar with. No, this is referring to someone who is deliberately knows it's wrong, justifies it anyway, and goes full force into it. Think the backsliding person who is raised in the church or who has come to church, who has started to live out their faith, models it, and then they get to a point where they just walk away from it. I'm going to clarify this too because there's a point in our culture itself where there's this whole concept and we don't have the time to talk about it called deconstructing our faith. And it's not quite that. It's not quite what's being referred to here. What is going on here is when you deliberately know it's wrong and you continue to go forward into it. And maybe you can relate to this little story about another commentary about his grandson. It says, we only have to look at our own hearts or actions of our offspring to know what deliberate sin is like. Again, this is a warning that as we walk in faith, we come across forks in the road. What is sin? Is it a choice? Is it an action? It's it's both our choice to do it. It's an action. It's a heart. It starts off in our head. And we get to those forks in the road. Are we going to do it? Are we not? And we have to choose. And he goes, we only have to look at our own hearts or actions to know what is deliberate sin. Case in point, our two-year-old grandson, Joshua Simpson, recently climbed up the kitchen counter to get a forbidden stick of gum. But alas, his father appeared several inches from Joshua's face, saying, Joshua, you may not have that gum. If you eat that gum, I will spank you. Okay, I've been told. I now know it's wrong. Now I have a choice. We've all been here. If you're a parent, you've seen this with your own kids. If you yourself remember your junior high and high school years, your parents set some ground rules. Don't do this, or there's this. And then you get to the question, what are you going to do? And what will you do? Joshua looked at the gum, then at his father, then back at the gum. Been there. I don't know about you. Then he took the gum, slowly unwrapped it as he watched his dad and put it in his mouth. How many have been there? What are you going to do? Are you going to do it? Are you, going to, are you going to? He put it into his mouth and his dad spanked him. There was more. Because a few minutes later, he took another stick of gum, climbed down, ducked behind the corner to unwrap it, and promptly got another spanking. The boy's a sinner, as we all are. Is that not indicative of us? We are all there. Don't do this, or there's this. Can they catch me? Can I get away with it? My parents have pictures of me with my hand in the cookie jar, always, because I would just be looking, where are they? It's the same way. That's what he's referring to in this deliberate sin that you know it's wrong. And instead of changing course, instead of moving, you deliberately run into it. And that's what he's saying. This apostasy, this backsliding is that. Where is there grace? Well, there's grace when you realize people don't know everything you know. That if you've been walking with Jesus for a long period of time and someone is newer to faith, they might be doing things and you're like, you are sinning, you don't even, and you get all red and hot. And they might not even know that it's wrong. Do you realize that most people are biblically illiterate, excuse me, and they don't know what this says. And we assume that as people come into church, those people are in groups or around us, they should know what this says and act accordingly. Many times they have no idea what this says. They have no idea how they're supposed to behave or act. And so it's our responsibility to teach them as likewise, a young boy or a young girl, someone who's young, growing up, it's the same way in your faith. We're to disciple them, to teach them, to train them what is right, what is wrong, and why is it right, and why is it wrong? But if they don't know that, 
then we can't hold those expectations to them. We have to remind them. Now, if they hear it, and if they see it, and they go through with it, that's when there's consequences. And that's what he's warning about is for us that in life, if we're not in community, if we're not around one another, it's too easy to justify sin. It's too easy to justify what we want. I deserve to be happy. I deserve these things. I'm entitled to this. No, you're not. Nowhere in Scripture does it say you're entitled to be happy. If anything, it says you're a filthy, rotten, no good, lousy sinner. That's what it says. And yet Jesus says, I love you, and I care for you, and I died for you, and so I want a relationship with you. And as we walk in faith, we don't want to continue on in sin. We don't want to continue on a trajectory that we know is wrong. We need to turn. And that's where he's giving this warning. You read verse 28. It says, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. In the Old Testament, it was you, you couldn't just condemn someone by if I said something to you and couldn't condemn you. I would need two or three other people to say, yep, that's true. And then you were stoned or you were killed or there was a punishment vetted out. And he's saying, look, if that person, anyone in the old law died without mercy on the evidence of two or three, how much more worse is the punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which was sacrificed and was outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Spurgeon writes, you cannot have the, the Jesus of Scripture without the doctrine of judgment and hell. Think lightly of hell, and you'll think lightly of the cross. You see, Jesus is the only hope and answer any of us will ever get. And his encouragement is, go there. Stay there. Keep your eyes focused on him, because that is what is of most importance, that in this life, you're going to face hardship. You're going to face struggles. You're going to face distractions. In our world, our, we have access to so many things so quickly. We can learn about what's happening in the Middle East right now by going online to Google or looking at any news site. They didn't have it back in the day. It would take months. It would take weeks, years potentially to hear, oh, that happened. I didn't even know. Now it's within the blink of an eye. And so all of these things worry, consume us. And I, and I mentioned the spiritual warning that it's not someone who's looking to deconstruct. We have this concept in our culture right now of deconstructing our faith. And here's my snippet sidebar for this. This spiritual warning isn't someone who's trying to deconstruct. It's someone who is deliberately saying, I don't want anything to do with this anymore. I'm so sick of it. I don't even want to read it. I don't want to put any point of perspective. I look at when you want to wrestle with your faith, you should. You look at any of the fathers of the faith, heroes of the faith, you look at Jacob in Genesis, and he wrestled with God himself. And the point is, you need to wrestle, you need to own your faith. It's when you stop asking questions and you stop seeking answers, that's the problem. Or you only read one side of the argument, you say, well, this, I don't like what the Bible says on this issue or this thing, so I'm going to read things that justify my point of view and what I want to hear without even considering the other without looking and doing good research or read and understand, to, to understand. There's the difference. And I would tell the teens and teen ministry, wrestle with it. Don't just say because your parents believe that's not good enough. What do you believe? Do you read it? Do you understand? Do you see it? Do you understand? Ask questions. Because if you ask, if you seek, God says, I will open, I will reveal. You have but to seek 
And so the warning here isn't against someone who's wrestling with their faith, who's challenged, who may have gone through something in their own life that makes them question, is God really God? Is he truly what he says he is? Because we go through those things to strengthen our faith. Yet some go through it and say, I just want to disprove it. I want to dislodge it. That's the warning is those that stop looking, stop trying to understand it. And his warning is, be wary. The only hope is found in Christ. And if you trample him underfoot, that's eternity. You have but one life to live. The time you're born to the time you die, you have a dash on your headstone. What you decide and determine in that dash will determine all of eternity. And after a thousand years in eternity, it's still eternity. And after a hundred thousand, a million constant. And so he gives an encouragement at the end to live with eternity in mind. He, he kind of reminds them that therefore we have this confidence to approach. Let us encourage and let us draw near to him. Let's be mindful of how we walk and our decisions we make in this life and what we're faced against. But let me encourage you to keep the end in mind, to keep eternity at the forefront. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those who treated, for you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Remember what you've been through is kind of what he's reminding them. Remember when you first got saved and what God rescued you from and then what that was like soon after that, those first maybe year or two, this church, which was probably in the city of Rome, when you were in a Roman city back in the day, nowadays when you're in prison or you're in jail, you get three-course meal, you get a bed to sleep in, you've got blankets, you've got a bathroom. You didn't have any of that. In Rome, it was, who do you know? They put you in prison. You better have some friends who are bringing you food. You better have some friends who are bringing you clothes. Now, how you got a bath, I don't know. But they're not giving you food. They're not giving you a pillow. It's dependent upon whom you know. And he's saying, when you first got saved, you went to those people who were afflicted. You went to those prisons, you had compassion on them. Some of you were thrown in prison and you went to prison to minister to them. And you gave them blankets, you gave them food. You had your own properties ransacked and you didn't mind because you knew what is eternity? What is the temporary matter? Therefore, verse 35, it says, do not throw away your confidence, which is a great reward, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Remember, the, the whole letter is written to people who are downcast, who are hurting, who are depressed, who have been pushed out of their communities, who have no real hope and are willing to start to compromise their faith to get back into community, to get back together with people. And what the author is saying, you have such a greater hope in Christ. Don't lose heart. Don't compromise. Go back. Because real Christianity, when you actually live it out, is going to affect your wealth, your comfort, your power, your fame. It's going to affect all of that because God doesn't want pieces and parts of you. He wants all of you. Will you allow him that? That I want this, but will you let God move this way? You read two, there's two books that really hit this. James is one. And James 1, 2 through 4, it says, Count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. We're supposed to be joyful when we face hardship, is what he's saying. For you know why that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. 
And steadfastness has its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So James responds to this. You have been walking in faith. Remember, don't throw away this confidence that you had. Remember you've gone through trials. Remember what it did. It grew you up. It strengthened you. It produced something within you. Don't lose heart, church. And it's hard. It wouldn't be easy. If it was easy, everyone would do it. It is not easy when you go through hardships, when you go through trials, to be joyful. And that's the difference between happiness and joy. Happiness is temporary. Joy is saying, I can still see in the midst of this the good. And it might not be in that moment. It might not be next week. It might not be next month. It might not be next year. It might not be for 10 years. I'm just saying. It's not an easy thing when you go through hardship and trials. And you see a scripture that says that. I'm just supposed to be joyful? No, you can say it sucks. It's one of my favorite words recently is it just sucks sometimes. Because life presses in. And life is hard. And all of us are at different phases of life, and all of us have gone through different things in life. Some of us are still dealing and reeling with things from stuff. Some of us are moving in the midst of it right now. Some of us have gone through it and are still not fully through it. What does Romans have to say about this? Romans also speaks to this concept of to this confidence we have. He says, therefore, since we have been justified, meaning you've been made right with God, you have access to the throne room by faith, not anything you did, but what Jesus did in your trust in him. By faith, we have then peace with God through our Lord Jesus. Through him, we have also obtained by faith into this grace into which we stand. So we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Yet again, there it is. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. It's easy to get discouraged. It is so easy as you walk through life and you go through things. The easiest thing is when life gets harder, presses in, you isolate. You pull yourself out. You remove yourself from family, from friends, from church because you're shamed. You have guilt. You have whatever going on. And yet there's an encouragement that when you're together, you can't get anywhere else. And you weren't meant to go through life alone. You were meant to go through life together. No matter how introverted you are, you still need people. And as you walk with people, how do you not become bitter when things go off the rails? How do you not get resentful when things are afflicted on you? You have to be around people. You have to be around God's family. I wouldn't say just anybody. I would say God's family. I would say church. I would say a good community, a group of people, because in that, they will minister to you in ways that you could never imagine. It doesn't mean you have to share your deepest, darkest secrets either. It's being present. And when the time is right, you have no idea what you're going through or have gone through that someone else actually is in the midst of or going through. And when we go through these hardships, it produces something within our hearts and that is endurance to continue on. That is character. That is hope. That this world, though it is evil, though it has wrong in it, that God is coming again. And that this part of heaven is the closest I will ever get to hell that ever will be. And it is hard. And Jesus said, look, if the world hated me, they're going to hate you. But realize it's worth running with me. He finishes off this part of chapter 10 this way. 
at the very end after this encouragement. It says, for you have a need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. It's the eternal perspective. It's not what do I get here in the now. If I get here in the now, that's awesome, but it's really about eternity. Who's coming with me? Who do I get to affect? It's that ripple effect that you don't know Ena, you don't know Josh, you don't know Daniel, all these people who impacted me in Israel. And yet that ripple effect is affecting you because of their impact on me. And their encouragement in my life, therefore, is translated to encouragement, hopefully, into your life, into the leadership here at New Hope. And he finishes off, for yet a little while and coming, one will come and will not delay. But my righteousness, one shall live by faith. And if he shirks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not, and he encourages the church, we, referring to the church, are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. That comes from an Old Testament book called Habakkuk is that phrase he's using. And in Habakkuk, it's though the fig tree does not bud, yet I will still praise the Lord. Though the hardship is here, I will still praise him. And it gets into this final point. We are not those, you and I, who shrink back but we are those of faith who preserve their souls. Galatians says, in due course, you will reap if you sow, if you continue on, don't lose heart. And that is his whole encouragement is here, is how do we not lose heart? You need each other. We need community, we need people. That life is better spent together. We live with that concept of eternity in mind, which brings back into the final chapter of 11 where Pastor Gray gets to speak on. Now faith, which ties us all together with a nice, neat bow. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, people of the old receive their commendation. By faith, we understand the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. It's faith. We encourage one another. We live with one another. We go through hardship because it refines our faith. What is faith? And we get to look at that next week. And you get to hear about all these men and women, if you read chapter 11, who didn't have it all figured out, who went through their own hardship and wrestles and struggles, and yet they remained faithful and focused on Christ. And so this morning, we're going to 